Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the post office in Cocoa Village is named in honor of civil rights martyrs Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore. They gave their lives, and we as a family gave our lives to help to um, make things better in the state of Florida and indeed the United States for black citizens. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Mirta Ojito remembers the Mario boat lift from Cuba to Florida. My parents were called gusanos, which means worms. And those are people, that's the way we were labeled, simply because we wanted to leave Cuba. Practicing medicine in 1950s Florida, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth's voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. On Christmas night, 1951, a bomb exploded under the home of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore in Mims, Florida, just north of Titusville. Both died from injuries sustained in the blast. Harry T. Moore moved to Brevard County in 1925 to teach at the Coco Negro School. He fought for equal pay for teachers and became a civil rights activist. He organized the Brevard County branch of the NAACP and founded the Progressive Voters League, which registered tens of thousands of African-American voters in the 1940s. The post office in historic Cocoa Village had been threatened with closure, but has now been named in honor of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore. During his invocation at the dedication ceremony, Joseph Harvey of Shiloh AME Church praised Moore for his activism. We must acknowledge today that... The Moors, especially the leader of that family, the Heavenly Father, uh, he was called uh, by one name and one name only throughout his community and his village, and that was Professor Moore. Professor Moore understood uh, that things don't happen by chance or circumstance, but that we must put ourselves to the plow and work while there's still day. He understood that equality means nothing, but social opportunity means everything. That's why he said that here we can vote. Here we can stand tall and be a participant in the society with that opportunity. Although those seeds were planted over 50 years ago, we see the fruition of those seeds coming forward today, Lord, and we say thank you. We see that in this day, in this very day, people said that he was before his time, but righteousness has no time limitation. So, Lord, we know that he brought forth a voter's right, and now we see not only that 
One man could be born in Washington, D.C. Another man can be born in a small town in Florida, and another man can be born on a Hawaiian island. But yet they all can wind up in Washington, D.C., standing tall for this thy people. Lord, we know that not only was it possible for him to stand tall, but he also understood that social opportunity means nothing without economic fairness. So he said, here I am standing before the school board today and requesting not something special, but only that which is right. And we know that he sought justice everywhere he went. He sought justice, but we know that justice says there's no time limitation to murder, but there is a time restraint to the accused being brought forward. But yet we say thank you today. We say thank you because those seeds he planted so long ago in that little church at the corner of Shiloh and Maine, all his spirit still reigns supreme. As he taught Sunday school, he let everyone know that opportunity is available, but we must step forward and claim that which is rightfully ours. Lord, we thank you that that social opportunity allowed me to have neighbors call Pat and Ken, Bill and Barbara, who invite me into their home as guests and not as their help. We thank the Moors today. Their time is now. Their time has always been now because we serve a right now God. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. Harry T. Moore began his career teaching at the Coco Negro School and later taught at the Titusville Negro School where he became principal. Students remember Moore teaching black history before such a subject area existed. His wife Harriet also taught elementary school. At the post office dedication, Brevard County Superintendent of Schools Brian Bingelli acknowledged the Moore's work as educators. Both of them were educators. Public education, I believe, is the greatest equalizing force on the planet. We know that by giving children both knowledge and hope, the Moors brought opportunity to a generation of citizens the likes of which their parents had never seen. But it is more than that. You see, those two things, knowledge and hope, are enormous force multipliers in the hands and the hearts and the minds of someone who believes in himself and in a dream. Many use those things, knowledge and hope, to change their lives for the better. Some use them to change a community. Still others use them to change the world. It is certainly my hope that as we use this post office in our, the routines of our everyday lives, we also remember the service and the sacrifice of Harry and Harriet Moore who made our community a better place for all of our citizens. The Moore's only surviving daughter, Juanita Evangeline Moore, was not at her parents' house when the bomb exploded on Christmas night 1951, but she arrived the next day by train, unaware of what had happened.
Moore says that recognition of her parents is gradually increasing, but is long overdue. I have often been quite disturbed because I feel that my parents have not been given the recognition that they deserve. They gave their lives, and we as a family gave our lives to help to um, make things better in the state of Florida and indeed the United States for black citizens. And as the young lady told you, I remember on Sunday mornings we were not able to get up and go to Sunday school and come home and play with our peers as most kids did. We were normally up and we got in either the Model A, the Model T Ford, or a Chevy. And we were always destined to go to some city somewhere to establish, uh, hopefully, another chapter of the NAACP to make things better for all. I, um, I remember one of the boards, I don't know whether it was the T or the A, they had a leaky roof. And each Sunday morning when we prepared to leave the house, we always had to arm ourselves with umbrellas so in case the rain, and you know how it rains in Florida, um, we'd have some protection from the elements. Um, my parents, as they were talking about my, my parents and their education, I remember one time my mother talked about her children, meaning her third and fourth grade students, so much that I became disturbed and I told her, I said, Mom, you don't have but two children and that's Peaches and me. Well, she set me straight and I had no other fears after that. Um, I am very, very pleased and I thank you so much for dedicating this post office. Uh, my dad used the post office in MIMS a lot because I can remember being uh, 9, 10, 11, up until I was uh, 17 years old, helping him uh, run off, uh, say, uh, sample ballots on a ditto machine uh, and folding them and addressing the envelopes and licking the envelopes and licking the stamps because we didn't have self-adhesive then and going with him to the post office in MIMS to send off the correspondence necessary to keep the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League afloat throughout the state of Florida. So it is appropriate that this building be dedicated and named after my parents. The effort to name the Cocoa Village Post Office in honor of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore was led by Congressman Bill Posey. At the dedication ceremony, Posey read a speech he gave to the U.S. House of Representatives. Mr. Speaker, today we take an important step to honor the lives of Harry T. Moore and his wife Harriet Moore. These leaders in the struggle for civil rights were taken from us 61 years ago this Christmas. Harry T. and Harriet Moore propelled the struggle for justice and equality far beyond the borders of their home in Brevard County, Florida. Leaders in the modern civil rights movement, they are remembered for their dignity, their compassion, their emphasis on education. They left a legacy that remains close to the hearts of community members and one that is sure to outlast the lengths of their lives that were so tragically cut short. At a young age, the Moors were dedicated teachers and educators in our local community. Harry began his first job as an elementary teacher at Monroe School in Cocoa, Florida in 1925. 
Two years later, he began a decade of service as high school principal in Titusville. Then, from 1936 to 1946, he served as principal and fifth and sixth grade teacher in MEMS. The couple first met in Brevard County when Harriet was serving as a principal in Titusville and Harriet was an elementary school teacher. They were married on Christmas Day, 1926, and were later blessed with two daughters. They committed the remainder of their lives to the pursuit of civil justice for African Americans. The Morris first found... The Moores first founded the Brevard County chapter of the NAACP in 1934, which led to a statewide NAACP conference in 1941. Mr. Moore served as the president of the Florida State Conference of the NAACP chapters, as well as the founder and executive director of the Progressive Voters League. It was, though, it was through these channels that the Moores championed such issues as equality, education, and voter registration. But their steadfast adherence to equality was not without a price for both. Mr. and Mrs. Moore were fired from their teaching jobs and found it difficult to find employment. To proclaim them pillars of the community would be an understatement. As the couple celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary on Christmas Eve, 1951, a bomb exploded beneath their home. Mr. Moore died on the way to the hospital. Mrs. Moore died as a result of her injuries nine days later. The tragic murder sparked an even more resounding outcry for civil rights. Harry T. Moore had been called the first American civil rights martyr. Brevard County has honored the Moore's deep impact on the community by designating their home site a Florida Historical Heritage Landmark, creating the Harry T. and Harriet Moore Memorial Park and Interpretive Center, and naming its Justice Center after the trailblazing couple. Additionally, the NAACP posthumously awarded Mr. Moore the Spring Arm Medal for Outstanding Achievement by an African American. Both these fine citizens undoubtedly touched the lives of others with the dedication, integrity, persistence, compassion, and commitment of each of them, each of them so courageously demonstrated. I'm pleased that the U.S. House of Representatives is acting today to pass legislation I introduced to name the U.S. Post Office in Cocoa, Florida in honor of Harry T. and Harriet Moore. Passage of H.R. 2338 will further honor the achievement and sacrifices of Harry T. and Harriet Moore, the leaders and first martyrs of our nation's modern civil rights era. Designating the United States Post Office located at 600 Florida Avenue, Cocoa, as the Harry T. Moore and Harriet Moore Post Office will commemorate the Moore's legacy in a town where Mr. Moore began his service to others. This will serve as a constant reminder to our community of the important and lasting contributions the Moors made to Coco and the nation. I urge my colleagues to join me in passing this bill, and they did. The statewide headquarters of the Florida Historical Society and the Library of Florida History are located in the former Coco Village Post Office built in 1939. This program is produced in the basement of that building. If you stand at the back door of the Library of Florida History, you can see what is now the Harry T. and Harriet B. Moore Post Office, less than half a block away. When will people, for the sake of peace and the sake of democracy, know that no bomb you can make can stop us from being free? It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, 
Don't you fear and run and hide He has no dynamite For in his heart is only love For all the human race All he wants is for each of us To have our rightful place And this he says our Harry Moore As from the grave he cries No bomb can kill the dreams I hold For freedom never dies Freedom never dies, I say Freedom never dies No bomb can kill the dreams I hold For freedom never This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, explore our educational resources, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. You'll be helping to support our educational outreach efforts throughout the state. That's myfloridahistory.org. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding you must help me if you can doctor my eyes tell me what is wrong was I unwise to leave them open for so This is Florida Frontiers. Retired physician James Van talks with Janie Gould about the life of a general practitioner in South Florida in the 1950s. When Dr. Jim Van moved to Vero Beach to practice medicine in 1952, he was among just a handful of doctors, most of them general practitioners. We had very few specialists in Vero Beach at that time. I think we had one surgeon and maybe one internist. And so a lot of our patients had to be transferred outside of town if they were in bad shape. We had doctors like myself and four or five others who were on the staff who were given turns taking call in the emergency room day and night. In the 1950s there were woods everywhere and that created an injury that was almost commonplace. We had a lot of bad rattlesnake bites. We did uh, a lot of work on that, you know, because you have to work on those immediately and some of them died anyway, but most of them we saved. As you know, people did a lot of hunting by walking in the woods, and that's where the snakes were. Tell me what your day was like. The day when I was in practice was 24 hours long. That meant you worked 24 hours most of the time. Our usual day started early in the morning by minor surgeries such as tonsillectomies, and then uh, by the time you got through with all your patients that were in there and... uh, went to your office, it was probably around 10 o'clock, and there you saw the patients that came in until 5 or 6 or 7 p.m., and then hospital rounds was necessary. Sometimes you didn't get home until 
10, 11 o'clock in the evening, families were sometimes asleep. Most of the time, my wife was available. She'd have dinner with me, you know. I know that she was tired, taking care of all those kids all day and waiting for me. After we went to bed, I sometimes had to go to the ER two or three times. It was a long, busy day most of the time. Van has never forgotten a man who was brought to the emergency room after having been stabbed with an ice pick. When he tried to pull the ice pick out, the handle came off, but the ice pick stayed in his chest, right over the heart. I was considering which way to go with this thing because I didn't know if I could remove it without causing problem with it bleeding inside. And I didn't know that it was in the heart, but the man died. In other words, he quit breathing and his pulse stopped. And within the next few minutes, I was able to get some material and I made an incision in his chest on the left side. And sure enough, the ice pick was in his heart, so I took it out. And his heart was behind a big cloud of uh, blood which had collected within the pericardium. So I made an incision in that and let all that blood come out and this massaged his heart and it started beating and the man took a breath. He clamped down with his ribs on my hand, you know, I was in there on his heart. I told the people around there to stand by and help me because I needed someone to hold up the ribs so I could get my hand out. So we did make a quick closure of that wound. He continued to breathe and stayed alert and survived. You literally brought him back from the dead. That's exactly right. He had died. The heart had stopped. Around 1970, Van and two other doctors formed the doctor's clinic to attract more specialists to the growing community. At its peak, 45 physicians worked under one roof. This was a great thing for Vero Beach, I think, because it saved a lot of us patients, that is, a trip to other cities to get medical care. We could see more people, be more effective to get immediate help in the laboratories, and in consultations. It saved a lot of people, a lot of time, and several lives that I can recall. Van and the other founders later sold the doctor's clinic, which is no longer in existence. Van retired in 1993 to spend more time with his family. Cheney Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Between April and September 1980, thousands of Cuban refugees left Mariel Harbor bound for South Florida. Their arrival in the United States had social and political consequences. Bill Dudley talks with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Mirta Ojito about the Mariel boat lift. My parents were called gusanos, which means worms. And those are people, that's the way we were labeled simply because we wanted to leave Cuba. The daughter of intellectuals who deeply resented the oppressions of the Castro government, Mirta Ojito, always knew that someday she would leave her homeland. I was an immigrant from a very early age, intellectual immigrant, if you will, because my parents always wanted to leave Cuba. So I always knew that my time in Cuba would be short-lived, which is interesting because I, at the same time I feel very Cuban, but I knew that, that I was not going to live in Cuba all my life. On May 11, 1980, 16-year-old Mirta joined what would eventually number over 125,000 men, women, and children aboard a flotilla bound for Miami. Finding Manana, a memoir of a Cuban exodus, is part personal story and part an effort to trace the origins of the boat lift. 
It began on a grassroots level, but soon talks between Cuba and the Jimmy Carter administration brought the release of several thousand political prisoners. Then for the first time, exiles were allowed to visit relatives in Cuba. Many bore gifts, symbols of American luxury to those left behind. Cuban scholar Juan Carlos Espinosa. That family-to-family contact for the first time uh, in many, many years with photographs and with stories about their lives in the United States prosperity and hard work and in very good living conditions created a kind of expectation among Cubans, especially young Cubans, that prosperity lay across the Strait of Florida. What happened in 1979 was that we finally woke up. We realized that we had been lied to. Hey, you know, the United States was not what we thought, what we had been told in school that it was, that it was possible to make a life here, that you could have a job. Then on April 1st, 1980, a bus carrying three passengers crashed through the gates of the Peruvian embassy in Havana. The diplomat who was there had a choice. He could have turned over these people to the Cuban authority, or he could have protected them. He chose to protect them. So one of the characters in my book is not only the bus driver who changed history, it's my argument, by the diplomat who decided to protect him. That led to an international crisis because in less than 72 hours, you had more than 10,000 people crowding the embassy. And the opening of the harbor in Mariel was a way to get rid of those people. And that's how I and others, my family, of course, ended up in this country. Within a few weeks, hundreds of boats were on their way from Florida to pick up those wanting to leave the island. In the end, neither Castro, the administration of President Carter, nor the city of Miami was prepared for the magnitude of the migration. Twenty-five years later, Americans' memories of the boat lift are colored by media reports depicting some of the refugees as criminals or mental patients. As part of the campaign of vilification against the people who decided to leave, people from all walks of life, Fidel Castro saw an opportunity to not only cleanse himself of political dissidents and people who were, who were disaffected from the Cuban Revolution, but also to stigmatize them by, by peppering the boats that were leaving with people from the jails and people from mental institutions. On Fidel's part, it was actually a very good move. He had to do something to deflect from the fact that his best people were leaving Cuba. So he did. There's no question about it. Uh, Sprinkled the boat lift with very bad people. And they did a lot of damage in some places, uh, definitely in Miami. But those were the cases that people remembered That really tainted the picture of Mariel for a long time. The effects of the boat lift on the policies of Florida and the nation have been profound and long-lasting, not the least of which is America's immigration policies. One of the things that Mariel does is that Cubans leaving the island all of a sudden enter a new status. They're called entrants. They're not just refugees. And what it does is it begins to change the way not only that the American people look at Cuban exiles, but at the way that the United States looks at Cubans. There was also a transition between seeing the Cuban exile as a political exile versus an economic immigrant. Mirta Ojito, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her work as a reporter for the New York Times, believes the boat lift story speaks to the longings of people everywhere for a better life. Because even if you have never been an immigrant, even if you've always lived in the United States, 
the idea that you can improve your life. It's a very American idea, and that appeals to people, I think. The book, Finding Manana, is published by Penguin Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can get a daily update about Florida history by liking our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society. You can also visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.